angry feelings are disagreeable. I'm putting you on warning. Just who the hell do you think you people are? They will be met with fire and fury. They make you act and look as well as feel unhappy. Our very way of life. Look at the fear. Are under threats from extremists. I am your voice. So welcome to another episode of Anger Management with Nick Clegg, the podcast where I talk to guests, wonderful guests, about something that I think troubles a lot of people, which is anger. There's too much anger around, not enough reason. What can we do about it? And my guest um, this week, I've been so looking forward to this podcast because uh, in many ways, actually, my guest this week, we, we did for a while almost have sort of parallel lives. We both became leaders of liberal parties in our mm. respective countries at roughly the same time. We both entered coalitions as smaller parties in the coalition at roughly the same time. I think my guest came out of that experience politically a much more unscathed than I did. And my guest, Magreda Vestaya, is now possibly one of Europe's most important uh, decision makers dealing with some of the most weighty issues of our age. So, Magreda, it's lovely to see you. It's so good of you to have me. Well, it's, uh, thank you very much for joining me. Are you an angry person? No, not at all. No, you never seem to be an angry person. On the contrary. I am uh, I am such a glass half full person. And have you always been like that? Yes, I think so to a very large degree. And is that personality upbringing? Well, I I've become even more so as uh, as time has passed by because so many good things are happening. It's not perfect, but it's better. And uh, obviously I see the crisis and the problems and uh, and everything else. But for me, well, this is, uh, this is work that you should do. A problem is work that you should do. To solve. Yeah. Yes. But, but the world is a great place. Wonderful. What a great note of optimism in an otherwise sometimes quite pessimistic view of things. And um, you've, uh, self-evidently, uh, like anybody in politics, but um, you've had to deal with a lot of people who get angry at you. You famously have, I think... Uh, a gift from some Danish trade unions of a middle oh, finger yes, lifted yes. in anger at you in your in your office, and you've probably had various titans from the tech world come to your office and uh, express their displeasure. And running a party, as I know myself, can often elicit anger from your own party colleagues. How do you how do you tend to respond to anger? Well, there can be so many different reasons why people get angry. Mm. Uh, most obvious one is that they themselves are in a difficult situation. And uh, and they don't know how to deal with it, and it comes out in in unfortunate ways. Uh, on the other hand side, it can be an expression of a completely a hundred percent legitimate disagreement, uh, only expressed maybe in a not very constructive way. Um, so, I, for me, it's important to see what is it that we are dealing with. Is this a reflection of, of disagreement or is this a reflection of the situation that this person is, is in, in in particular? Mm. Uh, because it's a very different response in the two situations. Mm. Well, if you disagree, well, you can, you can argue you can, or you can agree to disagree. If it's a person who de facto is in distress, you should reach out and mm. see what can you do. Mm. A very civilised and reasonable response. I don't want to puncture your optimism, but if you think about when you uh, uh, left Denmark to come to your job here in 2014, mm -hmm. I left office in just a, a year later or so in 2015. So since you and I have both left national politics, um, quite a lot of big things have happened. Trump, 
Brexit in the United Kingdom, uh, in your country, a sharp turn towards sort of particularly sort of anti-immigrant politics mm -hmm. in, not in your own party but in other parties. Um, would you, notwithstanding your optimism about the world generally, um, nonetheless agree that there has been a sort of eruption of volatile, angry populism in one democratic system after the other? Yes, I, I, I agree uh, to that. The interesting thing is to figure out um, what, is, what is this really about? Yeah. Because obviously uh, there are politicians who are seeking power um, and they are somewhat successful in, in doing that. Uh, so that is a very obvious uh, thing about it. But the other thing is that why is it that some of these discussions seem so welcome with many people? Mm. Well, uh, what's your explanation for that? Well, one of the things that I really dislike about um, populists as such is that very often they hate other people. Mm. And, and when responsibility comes around, they're not to be found. Mm. But that being said, I think some of the things that they discuss uh, about uh, inequality, uh, access to labor market, a balanced development in a country, these are completely relevant, important mm. discussions. Mm -hmm. And legitimate issues too, yeah. Completely legitimate issues. Where I get sort of a deep concern is where it is not any more sort of populism as we sort of use the term sort of slang-wise, where it becomes illiberal, mm. where it is, it is uh, a, a fight against uh, the rule of law, uh, human rights, the free press, uh, because that is something else. Mm. I think the, the, the liberal tendencies that we see uh, – they, they need a, a completely different response mm. than the response to, at least in my opinion, uh, legitimate concerns, discussions about how to make sure that you can have a, a balanced development of a, of a country, mm. cities versus more rural areas, uh, industrial cities versus more maybe uh, cities that live from tourism, all of that. Uh, how to make sure that the differences between rich and poor uh, do not uh, increase. Uh, how to make sure that you, for real, uh, have equal opportunities when it comes to education, mm. access to the labor market. That's a completely different category. Mm. But very often it gets sort of mixed into what I would say uh, illiberal in the sort of very fundamental meaning mm. of the word. But why, I, I, of course I agree with you, but I think the question which, to which I don't have a neat answer, but which I ask all my guests is, if you look at Orban in Hungary, Salvini in Italy, uh, uh, Trump in the United States, the right-wing Brexiteers in the United Kingdom, they're not having normal debates about inequality and country versus city and access to labour markets. They are, as you implied earlier, saying, I feel your anger, the people who governed our countries before are all corrupt and rotten and rubbish. And I will help you by blaming the Mexicans, blaming Brussels, blaming immigrants, blaming Islam, 
blaming anyone but themselves, as you implied. The, the question is, why is that proving to be so popular? Because millions of our fellow citizens are voting for that kind of deeply illiberal politics. Because it's, it's passionate. But and, why does that and, happen now? And, and it's a fight and you can, against, you can join to be against something. Yeah. Uh, and that makes your cheek blossom and you can feel your blood rolling. Uh, and then in comes a liberal with a thumb-thick yeah. scientific report about uh, the uh, 73% successful implementation of whatever scheme put in effect in order to enable yeah. uh, <laughs> children from a disadvantaged background in certain uh, areas. Is it what? Yeah. What, the, heart, what the, heart is, the heart is stronger than the brain in politics. But the heart is stronger than the brain, in, I think, in any matter. Sure, sure. But, yeah, of course. But, but the bit that I kind of... I'm sort of seeking to understand is why does, why does there appear to have been that highly emotive and, as you say, highly effective, um, but nonetheless very illiberal politics, why is that on the rise now in one country after another in a way that wasn't the case ten years ago? Say, well, I think, or when you and I were even in government, yeah. But to some degree, it's it's reinforcing. I still think that there are very different uh, reasons. One has to be specific mm -hmm. to understand what is happening in in Hungary, what's happening in Italy, what's happening in the UK, because there's a specific history. You you need to be able to look at the present situation with glasses made in the past. As, as they are. Mm, mm. But, but here also uh, glasses made from the history because that explains a lot uh, that you would otherwise not understand. Mm. But I think there is a reinforcing effect. Uh, but I also think that we could have done better. Mm. Um, of course. We could, have, uh, we could have been much more passionate mm. about the fact that no matter who you are, rich, poor, what background you come from, in front of the court you have an equal standing. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. To I, th I sometimes example. think lib liberals, and we are both passionate European liberals, the, the, the problem that liberals have is that they're sometimes so damn reasonable and sometimes it's important to sound not exactly unreasonable, but passion in one's reason passionate about one's reasonableness. <laughs> and that's sometimes a tension, isn't it? Yes, I don't know why, but... I, I myself is actually quite shy. For me, it has been, it has been, and still is, a thing to be up there to be visible. Yeah. It sounds absurd. I know. I was yeah. in a yellow floral dress yesterday on the platform. Yeah. Um, but, but for me, to I was about to say, you don't do too badly for someone who says that they're <laughs> unaccustomed to that or shy. But, but for me, it has been something to step out there yeah. to say, well. Uh, I hold these uh, opinions. I want to fight for this. But you grew up with that, didn't you? Because your parent was it your mother who was a or your uh, both of them. They were both yes. liberal politicians in your community in in Denmark. Yeah. Yes. So speaking publicly in your community or your village or nationally, that that you grew up with that, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. But uh, but still, uh, for me, it has it's something yeah. that I have learned. Yeah. 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 Whereas you feel for the 
Trumps and Farages of this world, it's sort of, you know, they might have been yelling at people from from the time they were in nappies. <laughs> but, no, but for instance, when uh, each summer, my, my parents, they were Lutheran ministers, both of them, but each summer in the week of August, they sort of opened the vicarage, they put in an ad in the local paper, uh, come for coffee. Mm. And then people, primarily retired people, they would come over the week, we would have like 300 people. And they would have uh, coffee and a layered cake and uh, uh, sponge cake, whatever. And uh, my father and mother, they would be there. They would sing uh, with uh, our guests. They would tell them stories. They would, you know, entertain. And I, I just very much like to be in the kitchen yeah. to make sure that the coffee pots yeah. were fill, full and the creamer was there <laughs> and, and the layered cake was... You were was, happy to be behind the scenes. Yeah. More than happy, yeah. yes. Well, that's quite unusual because most people I find, I'm not sure what you find, most people in um, public life, political life, have a sort of have a sort of slight hint of amateur dramatics about them, that they like to be on the, on the stage. It's quite rare. I mean, it's quite rare to actually, in your heart, prefer to be, in a sense, or happy to be off the stage. Yeah, but I realised that, that uh, I had to test yeah. it. And, and the first time I run for Parliament, it was completely safe. Because you were... The, Pretty young, right? Yes, I was uh, 21 or something like that. It was completely safe because no social liberal had been elected there, I think, ever. <laughs> was this in your hometown? No. It was uh, 40, 40 kilometres uh, south of, uh, of where I grew up. Um, but it was a very good thing sort of to, to yeah. test the water. Uh, what would it be like to be on a platform, mm. try to reach out to people? Mm. And then I learned... One of the things I've discovered, um, just listening to you speak, is that um, when I speak to um, American politicians, I did a wonderful podcast in a series with Joe Biden recently, um, their distinction between the private and the public is, if, at least I think to Europe, most Europeans, is quite, quite different. They're, they're, there's almost no distinction at all. They, they talk about themselves and their family and so on in a way which... To even you know, to me, and I think to many Europeans, is so is so so different. And I th I think we are still, I think generally speaking, kind of police that boundary between private and public more carefully. Yeah, but I think that there is a, a middle position or a third position to that because I think that you can be much more personal. Yes, you uh, have to be, don't you? Of course. Yes, yeah. this is why uh, I tend to tell more about myself maybe than others this is why my office is full of my own stuff um this is why i don't wear suits this mm. is why uh, um i have been in, in positions where i've been exercising a lot of power mm. and and if you exercise power on behalf of other people then i think you are obliged to step mm. forward to say this is who i am mm. I think that's very true, and it, not that it's relevant to this episode. It took me a long time to learn that, actually. Um, I, I think you do need... You're quite right. If you, With that uh, authority comes not only responsibility, but a duty to sort of explain yourself and where you're coming from. Can I switch tack for a minute? Um, Brexit. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised when you heard that the referendum had led to that narrow victory for departure from the EU? I had a very bad feeling in the the two weeks up to the 
the day of the referendum, that, uh, that this was not going well. Not that I could really sort of put my finger on something, but it was just there was something wrong. Mm. You know the UK quite well, don't you? I mean, you're quite a regular visitor and obviously a totally fluent English speaker and so on. From, from your vantage point, what, how have you explained to yourself what, what has happened in the United Kingdom as far as the European debate is concerned? Well, I'm I'm happily married, but I think if you if you bitch a little every day over thirty years, you yeah. end up divorced. Yeah, forty years. Forty years, <laughs> yes. But and and how could people think differently? Mm. Having if, been told for forty years, that yes, it was, yeah. that it's no good. Yeah, and then of course David Cameron said to the British people, "I think the European Union is pretty rubbish. I've made it a tiny little bit better. Please vote for it," which was not exactly an up, uplifting message at the time. Yeah. And I also think that it's uh, we underestimate people if they think we think that they only uh, vote with their wallet. Mm. Uh, there's there's so much more to life of than the economic benefits yeah. or or downsides. Uh, and I think a lot of people they're willing to pay mm. for uh, to find themselves in another situation. Mm. And we're sitting here in the. Berlaymont, which is the sort of epicenter of the, the, the European sort of administration in Brussels, uh, in the forerunner building of this, I was once an intern. I don't know, thirty years ago or so. So it's it's odd being back on this site. But um, uh, what would you say is the attitude now about? The, I mean, not about the Brexit talks because there's endless ins and outs of all of that. But I, I get the impression that shock gave way to sadness. Now has now given way to a sort of sense of. Um, sort of re- both resignation and also a sort of feeling of well, look, it's better, better we now get on with it. Is that is that a fair description of how you think people feel? Well, I think to some degree, uh, a lot of people has put a lid mm. on their sorrow mm. because mm, it's a job that you now will have to do mm. to get on with it yeah. to enable the UK to leave the union. Mm. It's a very complex task. Um, so uh, a lot of people, of course, put their uh, all their working hours into figuring out how can how can we make this happen. Mm. Uh, and therefore, of course, you have to focus on what is here right and now. Um, but I think that underneath that, there is still there's still this very sad mm. state of emotions. Well, it's when I, I share, Do, and if it's it doesn't sound it's not as implausible as it sounds. But if, for instance, which I think is perfectly possible, I'm not, I can't predict. My crystal ball is no clearer than anybody else's. But if this autumn winter, in effect, the United Kingdom, the the, the, United, the UK's political system just gets stuck. The government wants to do one thing, Parliament wants to do another, parties split and so on and so forth. So it just gets stuck, paralysed by the process. What do you think the reaction will be in places like this? Will it be, to hell with you, just, you know, just go and go chaotically? Or will it be, um, well, look, in that case, let's try and find some way to buy everybody a bit more time so that people can kind of calm down and work out what to do next? What, what do you think? I really don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. Um, also, because it's very difficult to see, because it's a 
it's an ongoing negotiation, both in the UK, mm. but also between the UK and, um, and, and the 27, with uh, our chief negotiator and, and the mandate that he holds. And that kind of very, very complex negotiations will have their crisis. Yeah, of course. And, and very often more than one. And when you're in it, you don't know if this is a sort of natural thing in the negotiating process or if it's something mm. that holds the risk of derailing everything. A real cul-de-sac, yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't invite you to comment because you probably don't feel like doing it, but I've, there's a lot of people charging around, both in London and increasingly in Brussels, saying, well, you know, if things go wrong, then we'll just have to sort of part company in the most acrimonious sort of way possible without any, you know a sort of divorce without any sensible court proceedings and just chaotic exit. I, I really hope people pull back from the brink of that because it just seems to be such a crazy, crazy thing to do in 2018, for, for not only for the UK, but for the EU as a whole. But uh, anyway. A change of gear... Mm-hmm. I ask this to all my guests. If you were stuck in an elevator or you were to choose to find yourself stuck in an elevator with one individual, who would it be and why? Well, it, it would be nice here in the Berlemont because the elevators are quite big. Yeah. <laughs> You've got space. Uh, yes. Um, it's, it's a very interesting question. And, uh, and the first person that came to mind was uh, Michelle Obama. Oh. I find her to be incredible. Do you know her? No, not at all. Not at all. I have never met her. Uh, so only watched by, uh, by distance. But in, in, I find her to be very interesting in everything she does, from her very body language to the way she dresses to the things that she has been throwing herself into with uh, food and kits and uh, really the essentials uh, of life and, uh, and her ways when she have given political speeches, um, I find that to be very inspiring. Mm. And what, what would you most like to ask her about or talk to her about? Why don't you run for president? <laughs> Good question. Good question. Well, well, let's try and arrange that so you can ask her. I'd love to know the answer to that question as well. Though, of course, the, the, uh, the record of um, with Hillary and Bill Clinton, I think the, the record of people from the same family standing for president is perhaps not, yeah, it's not a straightforward one. But Yeah, there is this detail that she's been married to president. Yeah. Yes, that, that's small the thing. Detail, yes. We're meeting here the day after you've made an extraordinarily important announcement in, in terms of your, your job as um, the European Union Commissioner for Competition Policy, which you've announced. Is it the largest fine that has ever been uh, announced? Yes, it is. Ever? In, you know, um, on Google and, of course, prior to that, you've taken decisions affecting Apple and Facebook and a, a series of these great um, American Silicon Valley 
Titans. And so I, I was very keen not to talk to you about the decision itself and so on, um, but really to understand your sort of wider attitude uh, to, to the impact of tech in the sort of broadest sense of the word, on society and also in democracy. Um, I've seen you've said some very interesting things about your concerns about how tech, of course, opens horizons but can mm. also close them. So, I mean, other than, in a sense, other than the strict competition policy side to all of this, which you've talked about exhaustively, and what is your wider view? This is, it is a bit like an industrial revolution. It's a bit like another re- revolution. It is. It is a revolution, yeah, exactly. Yes. And it's not surprising that we as society are trying to grapple to work mm. out how to absorb this and get the best out, of, best out of it and avoid the worst. So maybe the way I, the best way to ask you first is, what are your greatest hopes of what tech can deliver for us as a society and what are your greatest fears? Well, as I said, this is an industrial revolution, but it's also a, a societal revolution because it also changes uh, how we interact as humans. It changes uh, friendships, networks, uh, families. It, it changes so many different things. Mm. So it's not just a new way of creating value or a new way of uh, production, new ways of providing services. It is, it is very fundamental. And, uh, and of course, we haven't seen the, the last of it. On the contrary, what we see now is that from f- sort of a tech-tech core, everything digitalizes. The oldest trade, agriculture, government, transportation, health, everything digitalizes. And that holds an enormous um, potential for doing good. New ways of learning, mm. uh, enabling people uh, to fully health, engage. Yep, yep. Health, you will be able to cure things that were incurable. Uh, if still incurable things, you will be able to give people much better lives. But I, I think we have to be very, very careful. Mm. Uh, take a thing like language. Uh, of course, it's a very good thing that you can have many more things translated and it works much faster than it did. So you can more easily uh, access uh, other people, their thoughts, their considerations. But at the same time, are we certain that the language we get from a machine translation carries the depth and the nuances and... Um, everything that comes with a natural language. Mm. I don't think that that's a given. Uh, when I see the, the interpreters who, who work here, um, how they are able to uh, decode uh, body language, uh, intonation, the context, to give you a translation that really tells you something, mm. and yet, of course, still something is lost in translation. So this is a very sort of uh, mundane, sort of daily thing. But I think we have to be very mm. careful. And the impact on politics and how we run elections and so on, is that something you, you worry about? Oh, but I think we have to, to, to reinvent uh, how we come together, how we discuss things. Mm. Because it is obvious that we cannot rely on social media for political discussions. Uh, it's, for me, it's a very simple model. You have to, to some degree, agree on the world we live in in order to discuss what problems we have, 
to make a priority as to what are the most important problems and then to discuss and maybe fight over how do we solve it. Mm-hmm. What we see now is that um, social media, fake news, what have we, disabled the very first part of that, that we agree on the world we live in. But wasn't it always like, I mean, um, to take a crass example, well before Facebook was invented or even became a company, a reader in the United Kingdom of The Guardian and a reader of the Daily Mail inhabit completely different universes, and completely different universes. And they, in other words, the, in, the information that they consume day in, day out, and have done for decades, well before this technological revolution happened, leads to people having complete different siloed experiences. Um, is, it, is it really something which... I mean, I can see that social media has amplified that, but it hasn't really... We've always... People always lead... You know, certainly. Yeah, you may have had the tendencies, but the tendencies are then being um, exaggerated. Exaggerated, uh, because you would still have to shop for dinner. You would go to work. You would meet other people from other uh, places in society who had grown up in different ways. Yes, but it seems to be much more effective and sort of pervasive. Yes, Mm. and that being said, I still think that most people are open, to some degree undecided, want to engage with others. Uh, and this is why I, I definitely don't think that it's, it's lost. And I don't, I don't have this sort of a paradise lost, uh, because as you say, well, mm. the past wasn't too good either. Um, and so many things are going better, even they're not perfect. So I think we have, we have now realized that there is a dark side to tech, to data, to modern technologies, and we can deal with that. Mm. And on on this all-important issue, I mean, you know, it's, it's an overused phrase, data is the new oil and so on, but it's, it's as you very clearly just described, we are in the midst of a, of a, of a data-driven revolution mm. in the way that we, as you say, work, live, communicate, get better, educate ourselves and so on. So the heart of this seems to me to be, I mean, there's lots of d- debates about which you're very involved with, size, tax, and so mm. on. But at the heart of this seems to be about data. Who, who owns the data, how and why, and so on. And I get the impression that some of the, but tell me if I'm wrong, that some of the things that are creating real pinch points between decision makers like you on behalf of the public and some of these very big uh, data-driven uh, um, companies is that they're... Their business model is free up front. So people use Facebook mm. for free. Android is, ava- is made available to you know, these operators for free. And, but they then make their money by making sure, certainly in Facebook's case, that the data they hold on people can be made available to folk who want to target advertising messages to them. So how, how do, what's the long-term thing? Do we need to unpick this altogether and make the relationship, how can I put it, almost sort of more straightforward and honest to make people, well, not make people, because I don't think governments, and I'm sure as a liberal you would say we, we shouldn't make people, but should we, should we put this on a more transparent footing and say, well, why don't we just pay for it up front and then at the same time have more control over the data rather than not pay for it up front and have data used in a, in a way that is, less, that is more opaque to people? Is that, is that the kind of journey we're on? Well, I would hope that we would have alternatives mm-hmm. where you could just pay 
and as then a subscription model, sort of. as a, as a subscription model, for instance. So you had a an 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 ecosystem, an environment that was free of tracking, that was free of uh, of you sharing your data. Because the problem is not so much that you don't own your data, because everyone now say, "Oh, it's your data. You own your data." Mm. I just now ask you for a royalty-free worldwide license to do whatever I want with it. The problem is to get in control as to what we share, with whom we share it, mm. and to be able to say, I would actually like to share with you because you are, I don't know what, you are an NGO doing important research uh, when it comes to something, something. So please take my data and use that as part of your resource for your research so that I could actively do that. Mm. But also that I could actively say, no, I don't want to share my data with you. So I would rather pay with my credit card, with, with mm. money, with a digital transfer, um, in, in order to have this real choice as to what do I mm. want to do. But that assumes that people care enough um, in real life about sort of, how can I put it, parceling out their data and granting permission and making these relationship, these data relationships explicit. Because, I mean, there is, there is, of course, a, there is some evidence, I think, from some of these sort of pilot projects that actually when it sounds great in theory, but when people really are being asked to sort of, in a sense, manage their own data, they can't really be bothered and actually no, are getting it for free. It, it also takes no? ages. If you have, I, yeah. I think we need the market to help us here. Yeah. We need the market to provide us with a digital assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that we can tell the digital assistant, you should police my apps uh, and what I do, and these are my preferences. Right. And and you will have to come back and ask if you figure out that I cannot use this service if I don't give up everything, mm. that they will not accept my preferences. Mm. So, of course, we need help, because otherwise you would never get to do anything but to read terms and conditions and figure out what in this specific service would I like to click or not to click. But I think there's an, an important point here, which is about uh, value, how we see ourselves and how we see one another. Because privacy and the respect of private data is something that we give to one another. Uh, I very often hear people saying, but pff, I don't care because I have nothing to hide. Well, this is just because no one have looked thoroughly enough I can tell you. Uh, and second, even if it were the case that you really have nothing to hide, well, then someone else may have it. Mm. Maybe your neighbor is having an ugly divorce or someone in your family is getting a, a disease and they don't want the whole world to know. Mm. Uh, or maybe someone you don't even know holds political views that may not be sort of mm, much appreciated in public. So when you protect yourself, you also enable other people for them to protect themselves mm. because that maintains a full sort of uh, society to respect privacy. Mm. Yeah, and, and on this issue of privacy, I mean, as a liberal, do you worry more about the agglomeration of uh, or the retention of huge amounts of data by large private Entities, the, the kind of entities who, who've been in sort of, you know, you, you've caught in your sights in, in recent years. Uh, or is it, do you worry as much or more so about the capacity for states and particularly malign states? I mean, there's lots of concern about the um, capacity for, for instance, Chinese public authorities to mm-hmm. surveil their citizens on a scale probably never 
exercised by any public authority in the history of, of humankind because of the ability to harvest data and mm. not really bother about privacy and data protection. So in a, how can I put it? What should we worry about most? Well, we should put our efforts into making sure that this very specific European model can still thrive. Mm. Because things and can it thrive if we don't produce the Googles and Facebooks of this world? I mean, we clearly don't want to and shouldn't gather data on the scale that the Chinese can and want to, which will give them, I would have thought, a huge head start in the development of machine learning and AI and so on, which relies so heavily on huge amounts of data. But if we also at the same time don't have the commercial, the consumer-facing lead that you know some of the American companies do, is, is, I mean, is there a danger that we end up coming up with being the first people to come up with the right kind of rules? But yeah, but I think there is there are, there are inspiration to be found uh, in history mm-hmm. because there's a reason as to why Europe is probably the best place to live on Earth ever, especially if you're a woman. And and I think one what what has made us successful so far will also pave the way for success in the future. This is a very, compared to, I think, any other continent, any other country, it's a stable, safe place. And it comes from the fact that we do respect the individual, Mm. that things here are human scale. It matters. You matter. And and that, I think, gives a, a very specific sense of responsibility. Since I matter, it matters what I do. That's wonderful, by the way. I wish, wish we could bottle what you just said. And uh, I, I not only agree with it, I find it very moving to hear that, because it's so, certainly in my country, it's so rare. I couldn't agree with you more. We are far too complacent as a continent about what we have achieved. But what I found very striking by what you said is that your, your passion for um, the human-centred European view of things is it's very liberal, but it's also quite um, suspicious of scale, anything that's just too big or too dehumanising, whether it's big Mm. corporations or big governments. Um, And so I guess the question is, is it possible to get the best out of this data revolution without the sheer scale of, you know, very large reservoirs of data then being deployed to hopefully good effect? In other words, can we... Can we get the best out of this data revolution on a small human scale? But, for instance, if, if we are able to, to share, to say, well, I would like to put my data into this common, then you can have, you know, enormous amounts of data uh, put together in a place where you respect privacy and where you can give access to also very small companies. Because you don't have to be a big company to make the most of data. If you have a great idea, if you have invented great technology, then, then you can grow if you have access to huge amounts of data. The thing is how to enable that to happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are, I think, quite some good examples. For instance, in, in Denmark, we made available all uh, geographical data, mm. like rivers, roads, hills, mountains we don't do. Uh, we have 
what we call Sky Mountain. It's 173 meters high. Well, yes. it's all relative, isn't it? It's all relative. <laughs> but all of this data we put up uh, for public use. Yeah, we did something very similar in the coalition government. And know? and what we see is that it creates all kind of innovation. Yeah. That businesses that you never heard of, never imagined, yeah. they tap into this, and they make the most of it. Yeah. And and of course, this can also be scaled up if we are able to to create such a common. Yeah. Uh, but can I just press you because um, I, I, have, I agree with you by the way about the release of public data and how that creates an ecosystem of innovation. Mm-hmm. But it's equally true that the transformative effect of tech. Um, appears to um, be most um, impactful when it's, of course, a sh- on a large scale, um, when data can be agglomerated on a, on a large scale. And, of course, when some of these, particularly these big companies, spend, as they do, billions of pounds on research and development. I mean, a lot of this, quite a lot of this innovation doesn't come, doesn't come cheap. So I guess, and I know you will have been asked this so many times, but... The, fundamental dilemma for us as Europeans, we might end up getting the rules right, with the right values, but if we're basically pottering around with an ecosystem of lots of small-scale innovators who don't really, can't really spread their wings across society as a whole, won't that, won't that in a sense, leave us, um, well, leave us shortchanged compared to what's happening in America, what's happening in China? But the thing is that there are risks involved here. Mm. And if it were other products, we wouldn't just say, well, never mind, yeah, let yeah, yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was uh, the pharmaceutical industry yeah. who said, oh, all this nitty-gritty about testing and it takes forever and it's, it's so all expensive. All this boring stuff about all finding this, what the effect on health. Yeah, yes, yeah. all this boring stuff. Let's go ahead. Yeah. I don't think we would accept this. And and we have become wiser uh, over the industrial revolutions mm. that have followed one after another. And I think one of the, the, the takeaways is that you have to be careful mm. because otherwise you will not get in control of the dark side and there's a dark side to everything. Mm. Well, I'm sure as the, when the history books are written about this in unfolding industrial revolution, whether people agree or disagree with you, your, your name will um, certainly be, I think, uh, on, the, on the index of some of those significant figures in the kind of early adaptation of society and law and so on to this but, huge but, change. But don't get me wrong, this is not just sort of an yeah. optimism coming from, from nowhere. If you look at what we have achieved yeah. when people work together, mm. it is truly impressive what we can do. And it's not, it's not easy because politics is that you change the world through conflict. There is a conflict. Things are open. You fight over things. And then slowly but surely you find a compromise. A you find a new yeah. balance. That will then be challenged again. You will have another conflict. You will have to fight over what to do. But you will still be able to find new solutions. And this is what we have done sometimes in awful, bloody ways. Mm. But we have been able to come together. And the world is a much better place mm. today than it was 60 years ago. Well, it's a, I mean, I, of course, share your view, but that description of how debate and difference of opinion can lead to synthesis is, uh, is, is right. Um, but I, 
worry is is in, imperiled by the kind of politics of anger that, that that is sort of engulfing so many of our exactly because you ha- you need to be able to to thrive yeah. or at least to to remain in the conflict, not yeah. to try to escape it. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise, you just you're behind your paper. Yeah. Uh, with the, your trusted columnist and all the other readers who think the same as you do yourself, instead of engaging and say, "Well, we we may bloody disagree, yeah. but I stay." Yeah, and of course the corollary of that, and boy, do I know this! I've got the T-shirt, as I suspect you do as well, is that if you seek to achieve a compromise between two conflicting points of view, which is necessary if you want to create a synthesis and move forward, increasingly. You know, one person's compromise is another person's betrayal. But if you if you scream betrayal at every compromise, of course, you never move forward. And it's uh, it's certainly something I've seen that that uh, people have become ever more intolerant of the idea of give and take. Is that something you've experienced? Yeah, to some degree. But I also find that most people they say, well, it's the same thing in my family, and it's the same thing where <laughs> yeah. I work, and it's the same thing in my in my sports club. Uh, it's the same thing. I cannot always have it my way. Yes, but the odd thing is that people will accept things in their family or their workplace or their sports club, which they won't accept amongst politicians. But anyway, that's a uh, maybe. I'm sure that's the politician's fault. Time is short, and you need to. Um, um, move on to no doubt more, much more important things but can I ask you speak so uh, compellingly about your view of of beyond everything else Europeanness of liberalism of reasonableness of how to handle anger um, so what what next for you oh right now I, I have I, <laughs> no, have I didn't a call. mean right now I have and you call. know I didn't mean that but it was a very good evasive <laughs> it's the first time you've given me a politician's answer <laughs> no it is the truth I have to go but uh, no I have said that I would very much like to stay on as the, the commissioner of competition uh, because as in any job uh, you, you have to learn it it takes some time and here I think we're on to something mm. And um, and it would be great uh, to follow it through, and also because we have uh, we have important appeals, mm. and uh, it's very important to be there to face it. If we get it wrong, it's my responsibility. Right. If we get it right, hopefully that will pave the way for even more change for the better. Well, whatever the future brings, all the very best of luck and. Uh It's been a real joy speaking to you. Thank you very much for joining me on Anger Management. And that is the end of this current series of Anger Management with Nick Clegg. So thanks for listening over the past few months. If you've enjoyed this show, then you might like some of our past episodes with guests as different as Gary Lineker, former Vice President Joe Biden, and that little-known publicity-shy recluse Nigel Farage. You can find all of our past shows on Apple Podcasts. Just search for Anger Management with Nick Clegg. Thanks to my guest, Margreda Vestaya. We'll be back in a few months' time with more conversations about how to win the battle of rage against reason. In the meantime, please do follow me on Twitter at Nick underscore Clegg and let us know what you think of the podcast. And sadly, I must report that we still haven't had Paul Dacre on the show. Maybe after a relaxing summer in his various 
swanky estates around the world, he'll realise he really does need to get a few things off his chest. In which case, uh, we'll be here waiting with open arms, tea and biscuits and a safe space to help the outgoing editor of the, the Mail to manage some of his considerable anger. I live in hope. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Clegg. See you soon. Audio production is by Sophie Black and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Anger Management with Nick Clegg is a Podmasters production.